everyone, it's Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Ever since he delivered a speech on the removal of Confederate statues and monuments from his city in 2017, former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu has been seen as a no-nonsense leader who should run for president. So I asked him about that, his new memoir, Trump and Race, and the future of the Democratic Party. This conversation was originally recorded for our Cape Up Live event at the Third Way Opportunity 2020 conference in Columbus, Ohio on July 20th and has been edited for content and clarity. Well, Mayor Landrieu, thank you very much for being here. Welcome thank to you. the podcast again. This is your thank second you. time. Um, and welcome to Columbus. Thanks. Great to be here. So Go Columbus. Here, here's the text message I sent you on June 13th as I was reading your book. Here it is. In the Shadows of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History. I wrote to you, Mitch, it's Capehart, just in case you didn't realize me. It's Capehart. When I read books, I write notes in the margins and underline key or beautiful passages I'm only on page 11 of your book, and I've already underlined the hell out of it. Your response, I didn't time how long it took you, but it, it took a while, and you wrote back, thanks, glad you like it. So your book. Thank you so much. It was so lovely of you. Well, I mean, look, in all seriousness, oh your book. I know um, people keep those tweets and repeat them in public later, so you have to be kind of circumspect about what you say. Well, that is true. Thanks. Glad you liked it. Um, well, in all seriousness, your book um, is an expansion of the speech you gave in New Orleans on May 19th, 2017. Correct me if I'm wrong, just hours after the last of the four, three, mon three statues, one monument were removed. Uh, why do you think that speech struck such a chord? I mean, you're not the first person to talk about uh, race. You're not the first white person or the first white Southerner to talk about race. So what was it about you or that speech that struck such a chord? I don't, I don't I'm, I'm really still to this day flabbergasted by the fact that any speech that I gave went, went viral. I've been in office for 30 years. I've given a lot of speeches about a lot of things, um, some of which I thought were really important, criminal justice and, and lots of other things. But, and this speech, incidentally, was given purposefully to a local audience. I didn't ever intend it when I gave it for a national audience, as I was giving it two, for two reasons. One, I wanted to, for the record, since I was the mayor of the city, I wanted, for the record, um, there to be a document that reflected what the situation was, how it started, um, why I had chosen to course correct what I thought was a wrong turn in history, and it was really a, um, a formal way to respond to a speech that was given back on the day the statutes were put up a long time ago. And I actually was giving it to people in New Orleans and in that area to just explain to them what I was doing and then to hopefully try to invite them into a more comfortable space about the difficult issue of race, which we have a problem talking about. And I don't know, a couple hours after I gave the speech, some one of my folks came in and said, something really weird's happening. This thing's starting to trend. Of course, I said, well, what does that mean? They were like, <laughs> you're trending. I'd never trended before. And, and they said, this thing's going viral. Uh, and my, my kids went dead, seriously. I mean, you, it's going viral. And for some reason, this thing had coursed across 
the country. I, in retrospect, um, one of the things that I wasn't fully aware of at the time, I'm, I was in it, but um, when we started talking about this in New Orleans, my team was about 2014. The presidential race, of course, was many, two years away, and President Trump and, and um, Secretary Clinton were not even running, much less in the fight. By the time we eventually took it down and the time the speech was given, the entire tenor uh, of the public conversation changed, and the issue of race was much more intense, as you may recall, uh, during the presidential race and then sometime after, the country was really a lot more agitated. And I just think fortuitously, this thing hit at a moment where the country was very interested and concerned generally about it. On top of that, remember, by that time we had, our, we had, we had, had the shooting in Charlotte, which was the day that I determined that I was gonna actually take action. Before that, I had been thinking about it for a couple of years and doing some work. But when those, when those, uh, when Dylan Roof killed our fellow American citizens in Charlotte and Governor Haley and Joe Riley in South Carolina found the courage to take down the flag, I made a political determination that this was the moment for the country really to kind of focus on the next step, which seemed identical. And so I think it was just one of those things that hit at a moment when people were paying attention to it and concerned about it. You know, when I interviewed Wynton Marsalis for the, for the podcast, I asked him um, about his role in helping to bring those, those statues down. It's his fault. And, and I said to him, I said, because he's so self-deprecating, he said, I said, you know, you are this cultural leader. You know, the mayor came to you and, you, and he said, yeah, he came to me. I mean, we're just a couple of middle-aged guys sitting in a diner talking, and I wrote a little piece for him, and, you know, it happened. Talk about the impact of, of citizens like Wynton Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard in opening your eyes to um, the destructive nature and value of those monuments and statues yeah, it's in, a, it's in a, New Orleans. I write it in the book, but it, uh, Wynton and I have been knowing each other for a long, long time. Um, he's a young guy that grew up in New Orleans. We knew each other when we were in high school. <laughs> Terrence Blanchard, who's another great world, wonderful trumpet player, and know each other. I know his wife Robin and their two kids who I saw in the ice cream shop the other day. Um, it's important for friends to speak to other friends about things that are important to them and that are harmful to them, especially on the issue of race. Uh, for all the white people in here, um, if you go ask any African-American friend that you have, doesn't matter whether a doctor, lawyer, university president, this whole criminal justice you know, reform thing that we keep talking about, like, do you have a personal experience with the police? You'd be shocked at how many of them have had a negative experience and will say that I was judged by the color of my skin and not who I was. And then you will, you will become sensitized to a different place that you didn't think exists. And they won't normally tell you that unless you ask. On this particular issue, what happened was, remember, this, the city of New Orleans got completely destroyed by Katrina. 500,000 homes hurt, 250,000 destroyed, 1,800 people lost. The whole city was completely devastated. It had to be rebuilt. And with the blessings of, of the taxpayers of the United States of America and a lot of great work by the people of New Orleans, we began to rebuild everything in the city. And I had been the mayor from 2010 to 2014, and I had four years left to go. And I began thinking of a way to get the city to really think about not building the city back the way it was, but the way she should have been had we made all of the right decisions over history, which really required a lot of introspection, spiritually, soulfully, and then functionally as well. And part of that was preparing us for our 300th anniversary. And if you're a mayor, you are by necessity a designer. 
public spaces really matter, um, how your public spaces reflect who you are and completely reflect your whole history. So in that, I needed help. And Wenton Marsalis, for those of you that may not know this, besides the fact that he's one of the world's great musicians, he essentially is a historian. And music is his medium to tell the history of jazz and democracy, which is the, the music of freedom, jazz is. And so when I went to Wenton and I said, hey man, I need you to help me do this, like a good friend, he said, well, I need you to help me do something. And I said, what would that be? He said, you need to take down that statue of Robert E. Lee. This is exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. I just looked at him and said, what? <laughs> you lost your mind. And then he said to me, like a dear friend would, speaking truth in love to power, I was the mayor, he said, no, 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 no. He said, I'm, first of all, I'm really serious. And he said, secondly, and he looked at me just like this, he said, have you ever, because I asked him why, he said, have you ever thought about those statues from my perspective? And he forced me to put myself in his shoes, in his body. And he says, as a young African-American, do you know how I feel walking by a statue of Robert E. Lee, a man who never stepped foot in New Orleans, whose job it was to destroy the United States of America, leading the Civil War for the purpose of keeping me and people like me in slavery. And he said, do you know that Louis Armstrong left New Orleans and never came back because of it? And I didn't challenge him about whether that was literally true, but I knew immediately it was figuratively true because uh, Isabel Wilkins wrote a book, a book called The Warmth of Other Sons about the great diaspora of African-Americans, six million of which left the South because they felt unwelcome. And I started thinking to myself, because I knew this intuitively, how much we lose when our intellectual capital, our raw material, our, and everything else leaves where we are and leaves destitute, for those of us that weren't able to leave, what it is that they left behind. And Wenton was a personal example of a world talent leaving New Orleans, going to New York, running jazz at Lincoln Center, building an $800 million building, creating 3,000 jobs that we lost. And in many ways, a lot of people because they didn't feel welcome. And when he said that to me, he asked me to think about it. I started thinking about it. And the short thing is we came to the conclusion after a long public process that she came down. But he is actually the one that kind of put in my mind, you really have to think about this. You have to understand it. You have to know about it. And if you discern it appropriately, then I, your friend, am asking you to do what you need to do to make sure that you course correct what was clearly been a historical error and make the city of New Orleans, if you believe she's open and welcoming, a place that actually reflects that in her public square. And let's be clear. So you talked about who Robert E. Lee is, and most people know who he is. Most people know who Jefferson Davis, yeah. who Jefferson Davis was, president of the Confederacy. Um, Pierre Gustave to Tom Beauregard. Real quickly, who was he? PGT Beauregard. Yeah. He was another Confederate. He was from New Orleans, actually. Um, and he was a Confederate general that, that fought in, in the war against, of the, the states. And he fought on behalf of the, the Confederacy. He was one of the three. Now, the reason these three monuments were chosen, because those are the three that were put up. And by the way, for people that don't remember much of this history, they weren't put up right after the Civil War. Many, many, many years later, sometimes in, into the 1900s, they were put up uh, by the Daughters of the Confederacy purposefully as a result of something called the cult of the lost cause. That's not my term. It's the term that they use. The lost cause was the Confederacy's cause to have a better place for people to live in the purpose of maintaining slavery. And so, you know, I just thought that as a matter of, of course for the country, as we, as we move further ahead, I, I happen to believe that we're better together. 
I don't think that we've ever had a really good, comfortable discussion about race. The way that most white people have a discussion about race is, well, we had the revolution, then we had the Civil War, and then we had the Civil Rights Movement. Okay, that's good. Um, we're done with that because we elected a black president. <laughs> that's generally the depth of the discussion that we have about it. And it's, if, if, if you ever sp just spend some time talking to your African-American fellow Americans about whether or not that is a sufficient way to discuss that, they will say no. And I just think that on race, what I've learned over time, since the time that I was born until today, is that you can't go around it, you can't go over it, you can't go under it, you actually have to go through it and talk through it so there can be some reconciliation. And we really haven't had that. We're getting better at it. As John Lewis, my hero, says, um, he is evidence, as is President Obama, that we've made tremendous progress. But it's not, it's not, it, it is clear to me that we're not where we need to be and we have to continue to, to talk about it and get better at it. You know, and the fourth, uh, the monument that was removed was the, um, a monument honoring the White League, which yeah. um, the Southern Poverty Law Center, I believe, James Lowen called that monument, quote, the most overtly racist icon to white supremacy in the United States. Yeah, this particular monument was called the Liberty Monument and it was tucked away, Memorial had tried to take it down and a federal judge prohibited him from doing it because, some, because at the time the court opined uh, that it was gonna protect history. And I, I wanted to take that one down particularly because that was a monument that was put up to honor the Klan. It was put up to honor the people that killed police officers who were part of a multiracial police force that were trying to put a riot down in the late 1800s. And I just didn't want that anywhere in my city. I, I, I have said, uh, when Katrina hit that the nation gasped at the possibility of losing the soul of the country, that New Orleans in all of her glory and splendor has reminded us about what's beautiful about diversity. And these particular uh, spaces, which were in, and these men who were in places of reverence, not remembrance, that's a completely different thing, did not really reflect who New Orleans had ever been or who she ever really wanted to be. And I just thought that the city uh, could be much, much better, and those spaces could be used in a much more um, convening way to bring communion rather than alienation and dissension. Were you surprised? You write in the you write about this in the book, um, which is it's a memoir, it's a history lesson, it's it's philosophical. Uh, you start out by talking about how you grew up in an integrated integrated environment. It wasn't until you got to college that you saw that people viewed you through the prism of race. You write in the book about how through this process of removing the, the three statues and monument, monument, that you discovered that all of these white friends and white people who voted for you were turning their backs on you. Yeah. Talk about how that sort of impacted you personally to find out that your friends weren't your friends and the people who you thought shared your values and didn't really share your values. Yeah, it was very, first of all, I was, uh, in the book I write, notwithstanding my family's history of being involved with the African-American community and the civil rights movement, I, I was blinded as well as a white person to the monuments. It never really occurred to me. On the night that the monument, one of the monuments was coming down, Terrence Blanchard was flying back into town with his wife, Robin, and, uh, and he, he was at the airport, and it was happening at 12 o'clock at night for security reasons. He left the airport, went and brought his daughters to see it and told the story to the press that when he was a young boy, and he's exactly my age, that he would pass by those monuments every day on the way to his high school, which was right down the street from my high school. 
and that he would feel less than every time he walked by. Well, a, a incident, when, when he, that story came to me, I reminded Terrence when I saw him a couple of days later that actually every day he and I crossed paths because I would go to the public park to play tennis and he was on his way to school. Now, I passed the monument and never thought one thing about it my entire teenage years. He passed it every day and felt like, you know what, they don't want me around here. And so it wasn't until I was 58 years old until Wenton and Terrence, my lifelong friends, talked to me about this and I actually began to understand and become sensitized. And so the, the, the way the book is written is not as a condemnation to white people and saying everybody's racist. It's that if you open up and you listen and you know the facts and you see it from a different perspective and you really understand what the facts and history are, don't you think you want to move this way towards reconciliation? And so that's really what the tenor of, of what it is that, um, that, I, that I was trying to get to. And, and it, it just surprised me, to be honest with you, not all of the white people in New Orleans were against doing what I was doing, and not all the white people that against it were against it for quote-unquote racial reasons. Some of them were just tied to these pieces of steel and metal that were part of their childhood history. They didn't even know what they were for. They just remembered I was taking something away that had always been there for them. And many of them, when they came to know it, said, yes, I'm good to go with you. But many of them, a surprisingly number of people, mostly outside of the city of New Orleans, felt as though somehow I was trying to denigrate the sacrifice that maybe their, their, their ancestors who fought in the Civil War fought for. And I wasn't doing that at all. Uh, I don't know, you know what the intention was for some of the folks that, that, that fought in their war. That I, they may have just been following orders. It should not be hard for us to say, though, whether you had family members, however far back, that fought in that war on behalf of the Confederacy, to say that that war was a war in error, that the cause of that war was not a good cause, that it was actually fought to destroy the country and it was fought to preserve slavery. And we should be further enough along in this country so that we actually say now, notwithstanding the fact that it occurred, without emotion, we should say that that was not a good time for us and that that was not a good cause, and that the cause of America is about being united, not being divided. I don't think that that's hard, but a lot of people had, had some serious problems with that, and many of them were very angry about it and frustrated, and I'm hopeful that over time they'll see the better part of the argument. Now, as I said, your book is um, a reflection on a lot of things, and you spend a lot of time very thoughtfully talking about race, as everyone is, is hearing right now, but you also uh, talk a lot about the, how race and economics are, are intertwined. You write on page 59, and this is in the chapter on David Duke and Donald Trump, A Nightmare Loop, which I'm gonna get into now, but you write on page 59, and yet as, political, as a political matter, race and poverty can hardly be separated. As we often see today, the common strategy during the decades of segregation was to scare poor whites into thinking that blacks and other minorities were their enemies, when in fact, they all face the same economic hurdle. And then on page... He really read the hell out of the book. Oh, I sure did. <laughs> and then on page 188, you write, race is the great dividing wedge used by what was once the party of Lincoln to attract working class whites and country club conservatives who otherwise share few economic interests with each other, but are united against the interests of African Americans. That's some, power that's some powerful stuff and some true stuff. How do you bring the country along with you to see that that is indeed true, and then what do you do about it? 
Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Thank you for that, those quotes, because it's apropos to, I think, what many people in this room are trying to figure out. What is the message to Americans about how we can be unified uh, and not divided? How can there be shared prosperity, uh, responsibility, and opportunity? How can we figure out a way how to give Americans what they want, which is really just a fair chance to have a better life for them and their children to have a better life for themselves? If you're from the South, you may be a little bit more aware of this than in the North, because some people in the North think the South is more racist. Those of us in the South think y'all got a problem, too. <laughs> um, and I would, I would venture to say that the entire country has grappled with this. But it gets really confusing about which part of our discrimination is race and which is class, um, and which part feels alienated. You know, one of the questions in the country right now is that given the fact that unemployment is at a historic low and that our military has more money than they've ever had and the stock market is as high, why are people feeling so alienated from each other? What is it, the primal scream of the last election, um, which is that basically I feel forgotten. Nobody is seeing me. The opioid crisis is coursing not just through black communities but white communities. Black community then claps back and says, well, what has happened to us you know, back in the 80s and it was crack, where was you know, all of that? And so in the South, there was a strategic, for all you political junkies in the room, there was a purposeful strategic initiative called the Southern Strategy that was owned up to by Lee Atwater, God rest his soul, because he passed. Um, and a bunch of young guys that worked for Nixon, Manafort was one of them, Bannon was another, um, and a lot of other people that said, you know, the way you win is to divide people. You can pick your poison. You can divide them by race, you can divide them by class, you can divide them because you're scared of Mexicans who are rapists or you know, Muslims who are all terrorists. And if you scare them and you make them afraid of each other, then they won't concentrate on their common economic interests. They'll concentrate on somebody else. That's the person that's coming to take something from them. And of course, race was the calling card in the South. And that happened for a very, very long period of time. And it's been very hard, actually. I'm not sure anybody's really figured out how to do it to make sure that American citizens find common ground in pain or in, 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 in success. And race has always been really kind of the dividing line. And you see it right now with the, with the big fight that we're having in the NFL about you know, taking a knee and not taking a knee. Um, what is the grievance against the government? It's criminal justice reform. Well, you're not really a patriot if you, you know, oppose your government. All of that stuff has a racial component to it. And if you're from the South, you know what the term dog whistle means. I don't know if folks from up here are really very comfortable with it, but for example, make America great. That's a good slogan. Everybody wants to be great. Never really had the debate about what actually makes us great, but we assume that everybody wants to be great. You'd rather want to be that than let's just make America not great. That's not a good slogan. <laughs> it's the, it's the for in the South, it's the comma and the again that is the dog whistle. Because if you're in the South, in any African-American audience you go to, and you say, what does that mean to you? Mostly what you hear is, why would I want to go back to a time when I wasn't even counted as a person, when people didn't even see me, or people didn't understand my humanity? You want to take me back where and when, and when there's no recognition of your fellow citizens being in a darker place, you know, why, why would you want to go back there? And it's that comma again that is very much like what I said, that when I compared some of the, the language of President Trump with David Duke. Because mm -hmm. back in the day, I served in the legislature with David Duke. 
David Duke at the time was much younger than he is today. He was tall, he was handsome, he was glib. Really? He was authentic. <laughs> well, a, a lot of people, I'll give he you was tall. a very, he was a, <laughs> a lot of people really liked him. And when he was in Louisiana, he was in the legislature. He, took, he ran in a legislative district in a special election that, that Senator Vitter actually came from. And then he wound up running for governor and the Senate. He got two out of every three white votes in Louisiana. Now, he was not speaking aggressively racial. He was speaking in terms of, well, people have to work. You know, if you're going to get welfare, you have to be drug tested. It was all of this language. Now, when he left a rally, and you went into the rally and asked the people, what did you hear? They repeated what he intended to say to them and communicated in a way that they understood and heard. And so when, when, when we talk to African-Americans and other minorities in this country, when they feel like they're oppressed, when they feel like they are not going to have an opportunity, they react the same way that other people do who feel oppressed as they lash out. And in many, many ways, you know, are going to say there, where there is no justice, there is no peace. Essentially, what that means is if everybody doesn't have a fair shot, then we're going to fight because everybody in America deserves a fair shot. And the, and the challenge for us on the Democratic side is to make sure everybody feels included, which is the bigger message of today. First of all, if you can't win an election, you can't govern. That's the first thing that we need to remember. The second thing is that we shouldn't make the same mistake that the Republican Party is making right now, although they're winning. Um, of, of being a small tent exclusive party. We ought to be a big tent inclusive party. That's another thing that we have to concentrate our efforts on. And then essentially you have to make sure that everybody has a chance. Everybody's got a fair chance um, to, to engage in acting responsibly and to getting opportunity. Now, everything else fits in my mind into those boxes. There's certain uh, policy considerations that we're talking about today, but they ought to fall within those principles of governing when we're trying to figure out what the message is going forward so that when people give us the responsibility of running the country, you give you back Congress, give you back the Senate, that you do it in a responsible, thoughtful way that actually delivers for all of the American people, which is to say that notwithstanding that we're here talking about Democrats, you should always put the country first before party in the event that there's a conflict between the two. So then talk more broadly then about the state of the, the Democratic Party in the South. How does the Democratic Party on a na at the presidential level win back the South? Is that possible? Well, well, we're not doing really well on a national level either. But the, you lost the Supreme Court, you lost the presidency, you lost the Senate, you lost the House. That's like a royal flush. <laughs> All right? And so to the extent that the South is a part of gaining that back, we have to think about you know, what a national strategy is. In the South, as you know, um, a, lot of, a lot of the southern states have gone bright red. That has not always been the way it was been. I ran for lieutenant governor and was elected twice and won in the first primary a lot of, a, a, with a lot of opponents. My older sister Mary was a United States senator. She won statewide three times. President Obama's election and the clapback with President Trump has turned the state outside of the major cities bright red. And so we're going through this angst that the rest of the country has gone through. I'm not sure it's materially different at the moment than the challenges that we're having in outside of the states, but the South, as you know, has had its own unique issues. Demographics are gonna change. The African-American community continues to grow in the South. People are coming back home. Um, cities are continuing to be more robust. We need to, in my opinion, 
push back on this notion that we are somehow unalterably divided between rural and urban. That, as a mayor of the city, that is not my experience. Now, I, I watch CNN and I watch Fox and I watch MSNBC, and you would think that Republicans and Democrats can't stand in the same room together. Urban and rural people just want to shoot each other or hit each other with spears. That's not my experience as the mayor of a city. Uh, my experience is that, that folks that live in the parishes, we have parishes, y'all have counties, um, are intricately woven into the economy of New Orleans and vice versa. So, for example, you know we have a burgeoning tourism industry. It's, an, it's a $5 billion industry, 80,000 jobs. We have a lot of culture, a lot of music, a lot of art. And we have IT businesses and a really changing economy in the city of New Orleans. We are inextricably bound, rural and urban, in the city of New Orleans in order for the city of New Orleans to produce value for the state and then pay it back. And we work together all the time. People come into the city all the time. And if you just would believe your eyes and believe your ears, we are not nearly as divided as everybody in the world thinks we are. As a matter of fact, a couple of members of Congress here, Congressman, it's nice to see you. I would, I would lay a bet down. I'm going to just make it a dollar because I don't have a lot of money. Um, <laughs> that if Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, on Monday walked onto the floor of the House and said, I, Paul Ryan, am leaving. I want to give a gift to the country. I want to show you what democracy really looks like. I am now going to open up the House floor for debate. Five days. We're only going to do this for five days. It's just an experiment. What do we have to lose? I'm going to allow 435 duly elected members in this environment to actually have an open debate, pick any issue, if infrastructure, uh, immigration. Let's pick immigration because it's a hot one right now. And if he let all of the members of Congress who are elected today, the same exact wonderful people, have an open debate by Friday, they would come up with a comprehensive immigration reform package that 60% of Americans would support. I bet a buck that they would do that. The problem is, that's really not the way Congress works. And so that's why, say. well, yeah, it, no, but, that's but it doesn't, no, no, it doesn't work that way by choice, not by law. There's something called the Hastert Rule. And the Hastert Rule is that the Speaker of the House will not bring up an issue unless a quarter of his caucus, now think about that, that's a small group of people that are elected a small group by, by a small group of Americans. They get to choose what we talk about. That's insane. Nobody would do this at their kitchen table. Nobody would do it at the ballpark. Nobody would do it at church. Nobody would do it anywhere in America, not in one corporation, would they let a quarter of the people actually decide what conversation we're going to have. And that's why the people of America are really frustrated with Washington, because Washington, for whatever its reasons, cannot seem to get anything done. And so that's why people continue to look to governors and mayors and other places. Can we just make something happen? And, and, and I take your point on that, but you left out one overarching figure who would figure prominently in, in that five days of debate, and that is President Trump, who has the Republican majority living in fear that a tweet will lead to, from him will lead to a primary challenge. Correct. How, do, how then do Democrats now going into the midterms, going into 2020, how do Democrats do battle with Donald Trump? Well, the, first, the, 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 the thing that you don't do is to have an equal and opposite reaction. You don't, you're not, we're not going to beat them by being like them. I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think... I should, I should start off by saying... I used to think I knew things. Now I don't really, I'm not sure about any of the rules anymore. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> but, 
But I, I would say a couple things. First of all, as I, as I have spent years in the legislature and in the South and in, you know, all over the country, my sense is that, that Americans are more alike than we are apart. That if you as a leader want to find common ground, there's plenty of common ground to find if you think that's beneficial. There are leaders that think division works. And for President Trump, it's working right now. Those of us that don't believe that, that believe that we're better together, we, have to, we actually have to purposefully work towards finding a common solution to problems. So just that approach to life is better. Secondly, I wouldn't concede the issues of faith, family, or country to the National Republican Party. Americans uh, who are Democrats and independents uh, are every bit as faithful and as patriotic um, and, and work hard as everybody else. I wouldn't cede those theories. Um, and I also wouldn't cede the issue of economic opportunity and giving people a fair shot. One of the challenges I think that we have is, is, is Democrats are, are um, in our DNA committed to making sure that civil liberties and civil rights of people are protected, which sometimes says that we're fighting culture wars more than we should. The bread and butter issues really do matter. And by the way, given all of this, it's not a distraction with, with, with Putin. I mean, it really is a national embarrassment and it is really, really important. And I think that Russia's um, attempt to completely destabilize our democracy uh, is an attack on the country. And I think the president's response is unbelievably weak. It's like he, he took a knee to Putin. So I don't want to minimize that, but at the same time, we can't let that distract us from talking about the bread and butter issues that actually matter to the people of America. The opioid crisis is sweeping through this state um, in, in, in a way that's actually as dramatic, if not more so. Uh, the healthcare delivery system continues to be a challenge. Um, people are really worried about their healthcare. They're worried about having access to jobs that are going to be sustainable, that pay a living wage. They're worried about the government not working. Infrastructure continues to deteriorate in this country at a dramatically high rate. And Congressman Tim Ryan was here the other day talking about the federal government's need to make sure that they invest the resources in partnership with the state and local governments to actually just really create the ground that we can walk on, what our cars can drive on, what the rail system is going to go on, how the airlines are going to work. All of those bread and butter issues are critically important. And at the end of the day, the people of America want to feel safe. And I think security is a big issue, but in a thoughtful, right way, not in a way where you kneecap your friends and hug your enemies. That's not a way to make the people of America feel secure. I met two wonderful congressional candidates last night, uh, one of them that is running in Michigan and one of them that's running in Virginia, both of whom, one of them served a tour of duty in Iraq, uh, three tours of duty, and one of them uh, worked in the CIA. Both women, unbelievably tough about national security, but really smart and understanding about how domestic issues are critical to national security as well. And we should talk about all those issues and not cede one of them to the Republicans that are governing in office right now. And by the way, there are a lot of thoughtful Republicans in this country and a lot of independents that are looking for somebody, some group of people in, in an independent you know, arm of government like Congress to lead us to a better place. Um. One of the challenges that, and specifically the Democratic Party is going to have, or is having, is um, wooing those, those swing voters, um, those forgotten voters, the people who went and voted for Trump, while also wooing what I call the base of the party, African Americans, people of color. 
how, what advice would you give, as someone who was able to do that as the mayor of a southern, of a southern city, how were you, and what advice would you give to those candidates in bringing those two, those two sides together to see that by speaking to, to African Americans, you're not turning your back on the rest of the electorate? Well, first of all, it's a great question. I would, I would focus my whatever limited advice I had, not necessarily on the candidates, but on the, the, the Democratic Party and the apparatus, back to the issue of we should have a big tent, not a narrow tent, and that I believe that you ought to go into every state and every county and every parish and talk to everybody rather than some and not run a base election. Um, President Trump ran one. He won by 80,000 votes. If you ran that race two or three more times, it likely would not turn out that way. I wouldn't necessarily use that as a prescription for the future. But I will say this, every four years, for those of you that, that have been involved in the, in the mechanics of, of um, primaries, every four years, both parties have an internecine war about which anchor in the party is gonna be prevalent and ascendant. The Republicans have chosen theirs. It's the far right. That's what they have chosen. They're going to run a base election, which means that they have seated a good portion of the middle of the roaders. And the Democrats, in my opinion, would make a big mistake if they decided to run a base election and said, our base is bigger than your base, and we're just going to work on, on turnout. And so what you have to do then is to work really hard to find common ground and push the issue about how everybody, irrespective of race, creed, color, national origin, is gonna have an equal opportunity and share responsibility. Congressman Ryan was here just a minute ago, he invoked um, Robert Kennedy. And you remember President Kennedy basically said the same thing. I'm not offering you anything, I'm asking you for sacrifice. It's gonna require us not to demand 100% purity on your issues and build consensus. Consensus in terms of winning is better and consensus in terms of governing is always better. This is just my opinion. I think a lot of people may disagree, but if, I, if, I, if you gave me a choice of winning 50% plus one and having everything that I wanted and 65% having 75% of what I wanted, I'd take the watered down version of 75% because I believe that you can lay a stronger foundation and then you can solidify that into the future. It doesn't make any sense to me to win today and have one vote flip and then lose tomorrow, and then just to flop back and forth. That's not a good way to govern. And by the way, Democrats, we're not just talking about winning elections. We're asking people to entrust us with governing the country, and they expect you to solve problems. They expect you to do something that's sustainable. And if you don't include, or at least invite everybody in the country to come along with you, they're gonna say, you can't hear me, you can't gonna see me. And if you get them in a position where they're cold, and they're angry, and they're frustrated, and they're scared, they're gonna make a decision like we made that's gonna put the country at risk, and now we're gonna to have to undo it. And uh, I think that just that broad thinking is much more important. And I say that because the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, has a tendency to shoot itself in the foot when everybody gets in a room in a hotel and they just talk to themselves and don't talk to people out on the street. And I hope that the party, you know, and the people that are running choose not to do that. So the, So the people out on the street, since you gave that speech in, in New Orleans in, in 2017. Got to watch out which street you're walking. <laughs> and, and since the book has come out, and even right now, you gave an interview to Politico um, earlier this month. Everyone wants to know, 
are you running for president? Are you even thinking about running for president? Let me try to answer that question. No, just answer it. No, I am. <laughs> not I wanna, try, I'm gonna, do. I'm gonna answer it. I, I am not in a position right now to do that. And I've said that many, many, many times. It's not my intention to do it. It would be disingenuous to say you're not thinking about it because when somebody comes up to you and says, I think you should run for president of the United States, it's not nice to say, no, I'm not thinking about it. Of course, I can hear it, I understand it, I know it, and it really is humbling for people to think that I could do that. Uh, I'm not planning on running right now. I'm not saying that I'm not running and trying to run. I'm not doing that. I hear it, but I, what I attribute that to is the public being really thirsty for change. I noticed that there are probably 20 or 30 really capable, smart leaders in the Democratic Party that are gonna step up to the plate. Some of them are more traditional candidates, some of them are younger, some of them are in the middle, some of them are on the left. Um, I, I think that we ought to nominate somebody uh, that has tremendous experience, um, that could restore the balance of power uh, immediately between the executive branch and the legislative branch and somebody that is well respected on the world stage and then we can have a really all-out war in years to come about what the direction of the country is going in. But I happen to think that this is a very um, special time in the, the nation's position as it relates to our democracy without being overly histrionic. I don't think that we're in a normal time. Um, I don't believe that President Trump is taking the nation in the right direction. I believe that we're weaker, not stronger. I believe that we're less respected. Uh, one of the things that's making it a little complicated is the economy's doing well. And so the bigger questions we have to ask ourselves is really like at what price are we willing to destroy people's civil liberties and make America an isolated nation? Um, and is it okay if the economy's doing well that nothing else is working well? I think the answer that the American people are gonna give is no. And I think that we ought to restore that balance quickly. And so my expectation is today that I will not be in that race um, in 2020. I think there are plenty of people that are gonna do it. In politics, the truth is that you never say never. You don't know what's gonna happen. This thing's gonna unwind over a long period of time. We do spend a lot of time worrying about 2020 really, really early. I would ask people to quit doing that, not as an evasion, but 2018 is the most important thing. It, it, should, be, it should be abundantly clear to Americans that if the leadership of Congress, who happen to be Republicans, but by the way, they represent all of us, that if they are not gonna step up to the plate and limit the damage that President Trump can do to us on the international stage, that then we ought to replace them. And you know what, if we give it to the Democrats and they don't do it, they ought to throw us out too. I wanna close, because now we just have a minute left and I can't even ask you about your, your career in musical theater, because <laughs> um, he wanted to be an actor. I did, I still do. Oh. <laughs> that really is my first love. Is there, but is, my father saw me audition once, and he said, son, you really ought to go to law school and have something to <laughs> fall back on. I said, is thank, there a, thank is you, Is there Dad. a role um, that someone has played that you look at that and you go, oh, my God, that's, oh, yeah. that is the role for me? Well, first of all, there are a lot of them. I played Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar when I was in high school, and it's all been downhill since then. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but yes, I'm at Valjean in, in Les Mis. So every contract that I've signed, like when I've run for office, I put an asterisk on the bottom of, of my oath of office and look, if Broadway calls and Valjean's open, I'm rolling out of here and going to Broadway. <laughs> Do you want to give us a few? No, a few no, 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 not today. You got to buy a ticket for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to close with something that is in the epilogue of your book. Um, 
and again, you're, you're waxing philosophical here. You write, to move forward, we must commit to tell the whole truth about our past. To move forward, we must find that new space on race here, a zone of belief that holds promise for a nation committed to justice for all of our people, making right what we have failed to do. We find that new space in politics and society if we confirm our belief in democracy as a welcome table for people created equal under God, where the pursuit of equity is an open field for opportunity and responsibility. With that, former mayor of New Orleans, former lieutenant governor of Louisiana, author of In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, Mayor Mitch Landrieu, thank you very much for thank being you. on the thank podcast. Thank you very much. And I can't thank you enough for that lovely text that you sent me. <laughs> thank, you. thank you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.